Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. To support this podcast and hear more of Emil's music, go to holysons.bandcamp.com. flying to Chicago on Thursday and I'm going to get in, rent a car and go over to Dave McLean's house and we're going to spend The answer to the riddle is me, Dave McLean? That that's the one, buddy. I'm a fan of his work. I'm a huge fan of that book. I met David at college and then he started dating one of my close friends that I grew up with. And so he started coming over to Chapel Hill on breaks from school, which was a weird subplot. You're coming home from college, so you're like, you're just set free like an animal to just destroy the town. And me and David and Duncan had a couple bizarre like weeks, I guess spring break weeks where we'd come into Chapel Hill and it was a pretty surreal time because I was revisiting all the same cracks in the sidewalk, all the same areas of our town, but being a totally different person in a completely different headspace with my buddies who didn't really know the town. And I was pretty intimidated and not really happy about being in public. You know, a small town like that, the hierarchy is super fixed. Like, the cool people are at the top and they control who gets let into the gate. And when in music, that was a terrible situation. You were never gonna start a band and do well in a small town unless those people decide you get through the gate. So from the outset, I already knew I was just totally fucked. There was no way I was gonna be a socially affirmable personality at any point. I could not foresee being anything less than like, just full of total anxiety about just living on the earth in general. I wasn't ready to get on stage in a tux and like soothe people's minds. There was something about that gateway that perplexed me and made me think, you know, I might as well go to college. I might as well leave because no one's ever going to support me here. Like there's bad energy and I couldn't tell whether the energy was coming from them or coming from me. I'm totally willing to bet I was bringing most of it. That the world was probably this beautiful, hospitable place, and the sun was set on this amazing little town, and I was just full of terrible shit, and I couldn't reconcile with the world. And so I was like, well, I'd rather give up on this situation. I'd rather go somewhere else. Which is maybe just common sense, like to start over and experiment with who you might turn into. 
coming back home had this mixture of fear and elation because you're sort of free of context now. You can kind of float through and try not to give a shit about this hierarchy or these people that would oppress you or, or judge the fuck out of you. So me and Dave were like running around and Duncan might have gone back to Hendersonville for the night or something to visit his mom, I'm assuming. And Dave needed somewhere to stay, so we're, we're ending up back at my mom's place. And I would say for the first time in my life, I truly went on a bender. I mean, I think going on tour is probably qualified as an, a prolonged bender. Probably, yes. Considering you're drinking every night. But for the first time in my life, I swear, we, we spent a solid like three days or four days or maybe the entire week just drinking through and getting to a place that was starting to become psychedelic. Your brain was kind of like, it's almost like the oxygen is, is being uh, withheld from it or something. You're kind of feeling weak and faint, but still just powering through to this point that's almost delirious. I think we took acid a couple times and actually ended up watching TV, which I don't recommend. It's actually one of the worst things you can do while you're tripping because things are mundane to a point that mock the world in a way that is almost hard to recover from. Specifically, like, we accidentally started watching Cops. Which, oh, God. Yeah. It happened to be, like, that one episode where the old lady is driving and somehow breaks down right on the train tracks and the train is coming. And you're like, only when I'm tripping, right, do I, like, see something that makes no fucking sense that's somehow been caught on camera this way. And that seems blatantly metaphorical for something going on in your life, you know? Right. So, at the denouement... It's French. At the end of this bender, me and David are just... We're up in the middle of the night. There's nothing to do. And we resort to the television again. Except this time we've just been drinking for days. And mentally, I'm not feeling strong. I think Dave's kind of passing out next to me. And I'm not noticing it. But I turn on Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom. You know, it's kind of like an odyssey. It's kind of like uh, some biblical thing with the booby traps falling on his head and everybody's trying to poison you. And it gets into these epic sort of mythological circumstances. As my brain was weakened and more weakened, I began to see some sort of psychedelic Dante's Inferno or some sort of paradise lost like hell inside of the movie and I'm fading into the movie and it climaxes at the point where the guy gets lowered down into the pit they're like ripping the guy's heart out on the stage of the like Mayan temple and he's screaming in this cage and at that point something in my mind snapped like I saw I saw the metaphor and I went inside the metaphor and somewhere in that state of mind, the lecturer visited me. I think Dave retired to bed, and I grabbed this little Walkman. And somewhere in the weakness of my consciousness, there was a voice that came through into my mind. But instead of it being a voice that's like talking to me, 
for the first time and probably the only time in my life, it took my speaking ability and started to like rhythmically spit out all these universal laws. So you were like reciting them to yourself? Yes. Okay. Out loud. Okay. And I'm like, shit, I got to get the fucking tape recorder, man. It was almost like this entity, it was a force of nature that essentially like united with me in this weakened state and just started speaking in this language. It was a philosophical language of its design. And so I'm recording it and I'm thinking, damn, this is fun, man. You can just like tap into a well of knowledge from inside your own like potentiality as it's parallel to some aspect of the galaxy and you can just let it come through your mouth and then record it on a tape recorder like I was thinking like I'm gonna freak people out with this shit and I'm gonna do it at parties it faded after you know I don't know maybe a day or so whatever the feeling was that I was familiar with but I had the tape and the tape was dying. The, the batteries were dying on the hand recorder. So, like, it's this really demonic, sped-up recording of just chanting these descriptors of this reality. As the knowledge or as the words are tumbling out of my mouth inside of a rhythm that kind of bounces along, at some point, like a very specific poem of lines kind of materializes. Maybe the next day I picked up the acoustic guitar and it became clear that that was like, that's good fodder for a song. And I compartmentalized it into what ended up being the first song on the first Holy Sons record. that it came from a channeling like dimension folding situation just seemed like destiny anyway because your entire career is opening up into this terrifying situation so why not just let this aspect of the galaxy talk to other people instead of you and it just being this witchy introduction to what you're about to try to do I doubt I even tried to tell Dave what happened the next day. But when Duncan mentioned the lecture, I was like, oh, I've talked to that thing before. 
like Buddha underneath the Bodhi tree, I mean, maybe you have to be weakened. Maybe you have to be so ill. Maybe you have to have fasted for so many days or you, you have to be so out of sorts that your ego accidentally doesn't appear in, into your definition of yourself so that some other voice rises up, something that you can let take hold of you that you wouldn't defend yourself from. Maybe in that moment, artistically, you become unified and end up being sort of a, a tool or cog of, of the universe's design in that way. Then there are these moments that I think are probably the best evidence of not God necessarily, but the true mission of intelligence where things jump forward. They leap forward really fast, like a fish growing a leg, you know, takes thousands of years. But there must be a leap in there. There's obviously the, the moment that the universe decides to grow a leg is the definitive moment. You can't really decide by subtly heading in a direction. There's a fork in the road there. You want to grow a leg. It's going to take a long time to grow it, but the decision to do it, to go that direction, is evolution. In a capsulized form, that moment of greater evolution is the God moment. It's when things surge forward really fast and some steps get skipped and a new incarnation appears, something no one's ever seen before. to support Drifter Sympathy. You can visit distilled.com and get a 20% discount off of designer clothing and jeans. Distilled offers luxury-grade denim at an affordable price, utilizing the same fabrics, factories, and wash houses as the best-known brands and designers while skipping the markups and middlemen. Just go to distilled.com and use the promo code EMAL to get 20% off your first pair. That's dstld.com with the promo code E-M-I-L. The second way to support Drifter Sympathy is to visit holysons.bandcamp.com and buy any episode of Drifter Sympathy or Emil's music. Thanks for your support. Wrapping up 
this segment, this little mini dimension of these spring breaks where me and Dave and Duncan came back. And, you know, this only happened once or twice where we would all be together in Chapel Hill and acting like fucking idiots in public. Small towns are ruled by this kind of architecture of familiarity and your ability to navigate the manners and the politeness that's expected if you want to climb the ladder. So these characters drifting through are exactly like they're kind of the enemy. Like they just disrupt everything. They're not going to ever enter this powered pyramid. So as much as I could have even tried to explain it to them, like what the, what the rules were of this social situation is like, they didn't give a fuck, you know? And I'm sure that like, I was like amped up by my own insecurities and, and also just like, you know what? I'm fucking, I'm going to leave this town. I, I just, I can't foresee it an era where I ever matter to people here. I have to go find my own fucking way. And that's something that weighed really heavy on me because I didn't see any form of success ever coming to me or visiting me. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm a fucking loner that's just going to drift away towards death and some deserted end of the world, you know. And I think I can guarantee Dave and, and Duncan felt exactly the same way. So that we're sort of this just rowdy gang of like idiot misfits. At some point, we end up hearing about a party, and we're going to go over to this party. And I have some faint memory that the, the party was behind one of my ex-girlfriend's houses at a house. I think I remember, like, the Palvo guys or something about this being an exclusive crowd or something like that. Palvo, to me, was, like, one of the coolest bands in town. Dude, I was just talking about them. Really? The other day. But yeah, I'm a big I'm a big fan. They just captivated a part of my brain that to me epitomizes basically what a local underground band is. Part of that is like my proximity to them and getting to know them as people and really close friends now, but not back in the day. But also I don't think it's just me. I think like people all over the world that heard that band felt strangely like they were just the special example of something and I, that's a weird thing to say some people have it with us maple you know you can feel when you when you meet a real us maple fan they're like hardcore that's why i'm about silkworm yeah you're like that about Silkworm. yeah and these bands that not that many people care about but people that care about them really care about them a lot it's just a thing you know it's like you know it's a small time mid-level band that some people have probably just seen on the bottom of a Sonic Youth flyer. It's like, there's no fucking way that they had the potential to actually break out of anything but their weird little party circuit, you know, their basement right. scene or whatever. There's a big difference between choosing something that's willfully obscure to champion because it is, it's a cultural signifier as you being the one that gets it more. Right. That's a thing. That's that, a thing people do. Uh, yeah, that's totally always been a thing people do. But then it's very, very different to champion something that can't make it out of its evolutionary pool. Like something that, that is not born to be worshipped, but just is. It's just its flawed self 
sitting there asking for no attention and you fall in love with it because it's such a beautiful, humble moment in artistic history. For some reason, the complexity of your relationship like tumbles into this bigger thing. That's not like waving something around to become some sort of cooler entity with your right. friends. That's, right. that's almost like the opposite. sure I thought it was intimidating just to go into a party at that age too because I was like it was just too intimate I you know I didn't really want to have a real conversation with anyone and I certainly didn't want to dance and unfortunately I walked in and of course they're like blaring 1999 by Prince I guess maybe it's like my ultimate nightmare of a tiny apartment party it was also one of those nights in the bender where your body starts uh, completely rejecting alcohol. It's just like, no, you're, you can drink as much as you want tonight, but you are not going to get drunk. Yes, I've been there. It's a very special kind of misery. The one thing I need to take me out of my mind is like rejecting me. I'm like in this dark little party trying to like work around people and find the only alcohol left. I finally find like a box of wine, like the worst box of wine that you could possibly have at a college kid party or whatever. And I'm trying to like squeeze the wine out of the bag of the box, you know. There's not a lot of dignity in that. Yeah, it's like a watermark of sadness. It's yeah. like, oh, it's a box of wine night. I'm hanging my head and, and trying to like get the last bit of the, the wine out of the box. The guy who's throwing the party, who ends up being, like, one of the cool kids in town. He's way older than me. He's a DJ at the radio station. So he's, like, someone I, I probably would have thought was some powerful person. Sure. We all know now those people have no power. We all know now that, like, anyone, when they're 24, has no power anyway. The whole thing was so stupid, like, being intimidated as a kid. It's fucking ridiculous. Like, you waste so much mind energy on this bullshit. And, like, he's he's dancing around in, like, a little white V-neck shirt. It's, like, early metrosexual outfit. It's his party. He's probably, like, super comfortable and just, like, getting to know some girl in the corner. And he, like, spins into me as I just got the last of the wine to, like, some Prince song. And so... The wine, like, goes all over his fucking <laughs> V-neck white shirt. And, I mean, instantly, you know, he's the cool guy. I'm the fucking misfit, you know. Instantly, he's, like, browbeats me with, with the most judgmental look he can give me. He's like, oh, dude, really? I'm just, I'm just, like, so bummed the wine is outside of the glass and not in my mouth, you know. And I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, I kind of, like back away and God knows like 
I think it was just one of those nights where you just, nothing's going right and you feel like total fucking shit and you're bored. The worst part is like the idle hands of the devil's playthings. You know, the worst part is that you're just insanely bored. And I would, I would venture to say that like most of the worst things that human beings have done are probably in that state of mind or out of extreme boredom. So artfully, I'm not going to tell you what happened next. This is 1997. Fast forward 10 years. I'm at a grail show. <laughs> I'm at a grail show at Local 506. We finally come back down to Chapel Hill when I pull into my own fucking hometown on tour. It's been so long, I, I look around and I'm just like, I, you know, it's just another town. I might as well be in Houston, you know? It gets really confusing emotionally because you want to feel like some sort of rush or you want to feel some sort of like sentimentality. And when it's not there, that's the strange part. It's just this void. There's a lot of people from my past at the show and I'm kind of mingling through the crowd. Like nothing crazy, you know, no, no sort of true victory lap. It's more just like, well, I mean, these people are nice enough to come to the show. I'm going to go fucking say hi to everybody. Sure. My mom's working merch in the corner, which is like pretty, pretty cool and charming, sweet of her. And uh, I finally catch up with my buddy, Maria, who is fucking hilarious. Ten years before, like spent night after night just getting fucking wasted and just like terrorizing people in bars, like at the pool tables. And she's a loud, like really foul mouthed lady. And we were a good team. So we'd had a past. And so she yanks on my shoulder and she's like, hey, Emo, have you met Tim? And I swing my body around. I just finished talking to the bass player of my first straight edge hardcore band. And we hadn't seen each other in years. So I'm just, I'm really in that zone. And she pulls on my elbow and she's like, hey, have you, have you met Tim before? I'm pretty sure it was a totally innocent thing. You know, and I swing around and I'm, I'm like nose to nose with this guy. I'm seriously like I'm directly in his face, which is already kind of startling. And I'm like, hey, how's it going, man? Totally normal interaction. Everything's normal. Feeling pretty good. I've had a good solid, you know, seven years of, of being on tour or something. And consistently being nice to people so I have no enemies in the world I cruise into towns no one's going to know who I am or they're going to at least take me by face value so I swing around nose to nose with this guy faces right in my face and I'm like hey how's it going and the funniest things ever happened to me first thing he says to me he just says you shit on my car and I'm like hmm we're just looking deep into each other's eyes. And you know, there's like an old world, like it's, I think it's Arabic or something. This thing where if you study someone's pupils, you'll know if they're lying or not. I am locked in. You know, when someone sees you stealing and you just walk over and give yourself away, you, right, you right. turn yourself in because it's like, it's just too late. 
I mean, this is just shocking. I'm like, I spin around, eye to eye, random person says, you shit on my car. There's nowhere for me to go. There's nothing I can, I can think of. And there's like third grade little Amy in me, like third grader version of me, just pipes up and is like, no, actually there was another emo in town. And uh, I think you, you must be confused. Because what can you say? Like, I, it's like my life went flash before my eyes. And I just had thousands of memories, you know, just like thousands of anecdotes and memories just kind of, and like I went through the microfiche of my mind. Like I was trying to like search for what the fuck, how did I get in this situation? Like how am I in this situation? And like I think there's a moment in my eyeballs where he, he could see me locate a memory <laughs> of being at his party, you know? And him spinning into me and the wine going all over shirt. But it was such a foggy memory. I was like, oh, I never thought this day would come. Like, it's never happened to me before. I've never... I mean, I guess I've been caught red-handed. I mean, there was the time that I tried to burn my own elementary school down. Wait, but <laughs> did you shit on his car? Well, that's... That's, <laughs> that's a question everyone wants to know. Dave McLean was there. I don't know if Duncan went to the party. I'm pretty sure he did. But the thing is, we're going to talk to Dave McLean in a podcast, and I don't know if anyone should trust his opinion. <laughs> First of all, it's a very serious subject of just defacing someone's property. Yeah, but I think there's a statute of limitations on this stuff. We're 20 years out now. 20 years out. No yeah. one can really still be mad about that. Dave will have, like, a real good perspective so on it. So you're going to leave this as a, sort of like a cliffhanger? I guess there's a kind of little white lie you can tell that it's like, it just gets you out of the situation. You know what I mean? It doesn't save your face in the grander scheme of things. You're not released from the responsibility of what you've done. Right. But I just needed to get away from this guy. You know what's crazy is that happened to me in Cleveland, and I used that line, and it really was true. This guy came up to me at a Jeremy Enoch show and was like, you slept with my girlfriend. And I was like, who's your girlfriend? And he told me, and he was describing. And there was another guy in town named Jonah who went to a lot of shows who had, like, curly hair like me. Like, we looked very similar. And I was like, dude, I'm telling you, I know this sounds made up. It 100% wasn't me. I don't know this person. And it wasn't me. And then I ran to that guy Jonas, and he was like, oh yeah, sorry.
A lot of your music is pretty sad, I feel like, especially like your solo stuff or Holy Sons. But it probably doesn't feel sad to you. And it's like when I write riffs for UN, like sometimes our other guitar player will be like, dude, that is like crushingly sad. But it's like to me, I'm like, no, this sounds like pretty. Well, I think that's a cultural misunderstanding. I think I've definitely written like hyper sad songs, but most of the stuff is like, you know how in the 60s when your your parents would watch a movie and they'd call one character the heavy? No. You never heard that phrase? No. Oliver Reed is a great villainous type of actor. If he put an emotion on the screen, he essentially looks and feels like he's really actually living that feeling. The heavy is somebody who brings weight to the film. You know, like, this guy's brooding atmosphere is so intense that the film can't help but kind of slow down. Part of this is explained in a really famous clip with Oliver Reed where it's a very famous interview where the guy's like, teach me how to act like a villain. Oliver Reed is like, well, first of all, you can't be a villain with that silly fucking curly hair. You got to get it straightened. It's like, you can't have curly hair. <laughs> and then he's like, second of all, like, you can never blink. A villain never blinks. And so he's like, explains the science of like how a heavy, they don't have time to blink. If one is going to play a heavy in a film, and the great difference between the really dangerous man and the loud man is the dangerous man has a great silence about him and so always i find i have uh, terrible trouble with sound men because i'm known in the business as the whispering giant but my eyes are quite hard you see don't blink screen is so wide you see that it makes every eye about six foot across and if the audience is supposed to be frightened of you and you start blinking like this like like bambi which some people are sometimes inclined to do when they're nervous then it sweeps across the screen and it's not as convincing as if you're going to be deadly you never see a cobra blink do you 
No, you don't. Another thing you do, don't play it with curly hair either. Get your hair you know, straightened out. Why can't a villain have curly hair? No, villains have straight hair. Idiots have curly hair. <laughs> <laughs> In order to achieve that effect of, of weight, something that's important, tension, a song or a film has to slow down. You know, it can't be fucking flighty and fast. It's got to be broken down into a moment that grabs you. So that's part of my disagreement is like these types of songs that are heavily introspective are not sad people categorize them as sad but they're just heavy because you're looking in the mirror and you're trying to take stock and you're gonna face facts you're gonna face the reality and what's facing reality in most people's lives it's gonna take their mom dying it's gonna take death it's gonna take something to stop the world from spinning around on all this stupid bullshit and focus them on what's real well, that moment, as some people know it as enlightenment, or some people know it as like crisis, or Viktor Frankl or Sartre are saying, it's like almost like fight or flight. It's a moment of crisis that ignites your brain and makes you feel truly alive. That's a rare moment. We all know that it's fucking rare. And so what's the music of that moment sound like? Does it sound like, you know, some dance hit in your cab? It, no, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's taking you somewhere where you may not want to go. Hence, it's not that commercial. makes you think that not only the negative things in your life are compartmentalized into safe areas for you to approach. You know, people put a grid on the universe and they basically say in G3 over here on this battleship grid is where the bad people are and the bad things, right? right. So if I can just eliminate that area of the grid or not go near it, then I'm fine. Which, you know, is just an impossibility. The grid is inside you. I think that that opening moment, probably when you're 15 or whatever, and you start to feel that black cloud descend on you is probably a very determining moment because you define for yourself what you deserve or what you don't deserve. There's an old saying that I really like that the Eastern way and the Western way are illustrated in this, this analogy where someone hits a home run over the fence at a baseball game. The ball goes over the fence and into the street and hits an American in the face. And the American turns around and says, who the fuck am I going to sue for getting hit by this baseball? Same baseball goes over the same fence and hits a Japanese person. They say, oh, I must have been standing in the wrong place. The idea is that, like, in that opening bid... As depression introduces itself to you, maybe there's a micro moment where you make a decision that like, you know, maybe I can change this reality. Maybe this is something I need to grapple with, or maybe this is somebody else's fault.
the more I got into skateboarding, I mean, you can see I've got pictures of myself like on the front page of the Chapel Hill newspaper several times. So they would, I guess there was just nothing fucking going on that day. And they came and took pictures of me like uh, on my launch ramp or something. I've got my Jimmy Page shirt on and you can already see all the things I do now crystallized then. I determined my gods, right? I determined my, my Jimmy Pages and my Nottis Coppices. And at night, I went to bed and I dreamed about these motherfuckers. To try to, like, sort of uh, epitomize it, me and my mom would take these eight-hour drives from Chapel Hill all the way down to Georgia where we have this farmhouse every time we have to go see my grandma. It was just this epic journey where you're just stuck in the car and you have really no way to distract yourself. So you have these really long conversations. You listen to the Del Shannon tapes and you just kind of, you know, try to enjoy the drive. And somewhere right near the end, in the middle of Georgia, in this little town in the middle of America where there's just nothing else. And we're literally just driving up this hill and there's nothing in the horizon. And every time I could, like, sense it was coming closer. And as we get to the top of this little hill, there's this weird old gas station off to the right. And for some really crazy reason, out in this backwoods town of Georgia, somebody had, like, discarded all of the stickers and all of the wheels and all of the weird ephemera from from skateboarding's past into the back of this gas station for some reason so back behind like the fishing bait and all this stuff was this crazy lit up glass encased thing of skateboarding history and you know i didn't even have a dollar 75 so you know, every time I'd come through and my mom, would, I'd be like, oh my God, it's the gas station, you know, so we pull over and part, what I'm trying to say is like the level of rabid excitement I had just to peer down because somebody kept re-upping it, like somebody kept re- refilling this thing up with new stuff from the old days. You know, I I met Mike McGill and Tony Hawk. I even met Gator before he fucking killed that girl, which is insane to me because if you watch the Gator documentary, it's called Stoked. It's really one of the great skate documentaries. It's anybody would be interested in it because it's about the crash of of this 80s era that was so weird and awkward. It's kind of like hair metal right before Nirvana. It's like this strange island of culture. Right before he ends up raping and killing this girl in a hot tub, he starts to tailspin. He goes down to Australia, and he punches this little kid in the face that asks him for an autograph too many times. And I swear to God, days before he did that, I asked him for an autograph too many times. And he looked like he was going to hit me, but he didn't do it. I was I was like up on the half pipe at this contest in Norfolk, Virginia, that I had luckily got into. It was right before I quit. He was desperately grasping at straws, trying to figure out what would work to get him back to the lifestyle he used to have. And then slowly just got worse and worse, and he did worse and worse things. There was a tour of Australia where we were getting calls almost daily that Mark was uh, aggressive in his behavior. He was throwing boards at kids. 
that's when Gator was spending a lot of time with this trainer guy, and he was getting pretty intense about his diet and things like that. The guy didn't have broccoli, fresh broccoli for him, and he threw a big fucking tantrum. He was super mad, and I felt he was such a baby because fresh broccoli, who gives a fuck? Fuck limits in your life. Just eat corn dogs, who cares? I guess he did a bunch of demos, like, all in a row. He was just getting really worn out, tired, frustrated. And some kid had come up to him and asked him for an autograph. I guess Gator shoot him off, like, no, stop, don't bug me, I'm just, you know. And the kid was pretty persistent about it. Gators hauled off and hit him, socked him in front of a bunch of people. And people were just pissed. Before I could age out of it, I was basically like marinating in this heaven of endorphins, you know. So I'm peering down into this gas station. I'm just looking down at all these these things in the gas station. It's like I know that I'll never feel like that again. Just like you right, you right. always say. Sure. Cuz what I was looking at was worth pennies. And it's very very hard for me to symbolize to be able to describe to another person why it was so exciting. But I'm going to go on the wager that everybody has something like that in their life, that they experience some sort of uh, spiritual fetishism, you know, something that symbolizes everything in something that's really kind of nothing, and everybody else thinks it's absurd. But they finally, after years going through this gas station, they finally, like, it was all gone. Like, either they threw it away, or somebody finally bought the last sticker. I always think back about that that ascension up to that gas station to this day, the feeling I would get in my stomach, you know, and I know that I'll, I'll never be able to relive that level of excitement. I mean, I think sex is like the only other thing that we go through where there's that level of like, of mystique where you're like, I don't know what's going to be in the gas station this time. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And sex is kind of like that in the sense that like, you don't know if the girl likes you too. And Oh my God, maybe she does. And then later on. Yeah, of course she likes me. You know, it's like you get to a point where like it's, everything's too, it's too easy. There has to be that, that tension of mystique. So it's hard. It's hard to find many things in life in life that can grant you that level of like unsureness, you know? Right. I can almost picture like waking up on like a lazy Saturday when you're supposed to like rush outside and the sun's up and little Jimmy's knocking on your door, ready to go skating. And it was really hard for me to do, but it had to tell little Jimmy one day I was like, Dude, I don't know how to say this, but like, I don't think I want to skate anymore. And he was just like, it was like the most intense slap to Jimmy's face. Like, like he was like so religiously angry. I mean, it's like someone leaving the church, a hardcore fundamentalist church and like going to the opposite team. For some reason, like emotionally, the depression that rose up, you know, that was kind of like this dark cloud of, you know, this damp thing that's kind of paralyzing you. So you can't, you can't run outside, 
the sun's up, everybody else is having fun. But your body is not going to let you do that anymore. It's not going to be that easy to participate. Like something's holding you back and you don't know what it is. It doesn't have a root cause. It doesn't have, there's no reason. There's not, you know, your parents didn't get divorced. It's, there's nothing. There's no reason why you know it must be happening. Little Jimmy's knocking on the door. And all you know is you can't, you can't do it. You can't be part of that thing anymore that brought you so much happiness. And that's an intense thing to give up on something that gave you everything, you know? Yeah. But then knowing that it was unavoidable, knowing that it was something I couldn't control meant that it must be the right way forward because it was just real. So you're exiting the ultimate defining moment of your life and there's this initial sense that okay as this intense cloud of paralyzing depression is coming in one side what could possibly give me a place to deal with that skateboarding can't it's got so much artistic leeway to it it's got so much creativity but essentially it's not going to give me a field a canvas to deal with this new problem this serious problem life or death issue and there was only one thing that could do that and it was going to be music black cloud you know coming down is trying to take control of your life and there's only one way to transmute it and take back the control turn it into something that makes you feel better what could establish that level of alchemy maybe skateboarding could do that for someone but i needed something that could help evaluate the situation and could also receive it and i think i probably looked over across the living room and my dad had given me a really early four track and it I, it sat there for like a year, two years because it looked kind of technical and it looked kind of like a scientific instrument or something. But I probably looked over at that and realized I'd been recording my friend's hardcore bands and, and, and my first band and the sunshine went away, dinner time was over and there was nothing in front of me there was just my time to be myself no one wanted me to go to school no one wanted anything i had the night time it's only a matter of time you're going to plug a microphone in and you're going to start dealing with this situation and start talking about it and the moment you see that there's a, a, a direct relationship a correlation between the most difficult thing coming into your life and on the other hand a world of total freedom where you can actually process that difficulty in its most raw form, not lie to yourself, not try to make anyone else happy. Of course those songs sound like sad songs to other people, but really what's just happening is someone's trying to be honest with themselves in the most rigorous way they can. What does that sound like? That's the sound of honesty. Spaceman 3 had the sound of confusion. It's a really cool way to say it. 
the sound of confusion. That's the that's the sound of someone being honest. As you sort of try to reach for some autonomous way to chisel out who you are in high school when everybody's asking you what you're going to do, and then boom, everybody goes away, you're alone. I think that there was a few thousand other kids that were listening to You're Living All Over Me and, and heard Lou Barlow pick up a ukulele and do that thing on a fucking four track. Yeah. There was probably 2,000 kids that were just like, oh my God, I can be myself. I can fucking leave behind the bullshit of the world and I can be alone in my own private religion. Hey, I'm starting to feel okay. I think I could make it through. I'm feeling much smarter today. I think I'll be friends with hey, friend. I'm sorry if I don't talk. It seemed like there's nothing to say. Is it enough just to share some time before it all falls away? I'm no understanding fall, not satisfied with your respect. I'm digging you under today, and I'm laughing at your back. Just scream if I cut too close. I'll only hold it back. There's like a decade.